And so my involvement with them was really about addressing, speaking to, advancing recognition of the distinctive positioning of Métis women living within Southern Ontario. A lot of this has come from a personal engagement with and a witnessing of the work that Métis women have been doing in these spaces. And I've had the privilege to sit alongside women as they met with different members of government, other Indigenous organizations, and even with UN representatives when I was in Ottawa. And it gave me a pretty life-changing insight into the you know, what my academic speak would say, the complex public strategies of resilience practiced by Métis women. Métis Matters in Research and in Canada. Hello and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. On this latest edition of View to the U podcast, Professor Jennifer Adese from the Department of Sociology at U of T Mississauga discusses her Indigenous research and some of her current projects. She also talks about the current race-related movements happening around the world, what it means to be an ally and to stand in solidarity with communities that are oppressed, and she has several book recommendations that can help inform us on matters related to Indigenous history in Canada. Jennifer Adese is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at U of T Mississauga and at U of T. Her research focuses on Indigenous political and cultural representation across several sites, while her earlier work focused on confronting misrepresentations of Indigenous people. Her more recent work examines Métis women's political representation and activism. Jennifer is a co-editor of the forthcoming anthologies, A People and a Nation, New Directions in Contemporary Métis Studies, and Indigenous Celebrity, Entanglements with Fame, the first dedicated volume to exploring Indigenous people's experiences with celebrity culture. In 2019, her project, No One Else Can Speak for Us, Métis Women's Political Organizing 1970s to Present, was funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, and it explores political organizing and mobilization by Métis women from the 1970s to present day. She is also examining the history of violence against Métis girls and women, looking into why Métis were largely ignored in the federal government inquiry. Jennifer joined the Department of Sociology at UTM in 2018. Throughout my academic career, I've, I've been really interested in studying representation and representation quite broadly from many different lenses. So my primary research interests grow from within Indigenous studies, but I also have disciplinary training in critical race theory and cultural studies, visual culture studies, and literary criticism. So I've used that to really think about uh, representation much in the way that Stuart Hall has written about it and talked about it as a kind of visual discourse speaking to the way in which people and things are represented through language, but the way that this gets channeled into visual forms of representation. And through that, I developed my doctoral thesis that then transitioned into my major sole authored book project that I'm working on finishing up right now. It's under contract with UBC Press. 
and it's titled Aboriginal with a little trademark symbol at the sociocultural corporate nexus of a legal political term. And it's a, a discursive analysis of the term Aboriginal and its rise to popular usage in the wake of the 1982 Constitution. Um, and in particular, it looks at the way that the entrenchment of Aboriginal rights within Section 35 of Canada's Constitution actually moves beyond just being something about rights and legal language. And so through a reflection on the term, where it comes from, its origins against other terms, and through analyzing different sites of visual, cultural representation, political, social, economic encounters, the book argues that Aboriginality in the context of sociocultural and corporate contexts was increasingly used through the 1990s and the 2000s to market the relationship between Indigenous people in Canada as one of a kind of multicultural collaboration and harmony. The sites that I use, I argue that the way that it's deployed in such spaces kind of serves to mask the deeply troubling depoliticization of Aboriginality through separating the word from rights. So the way that it gets taken up moves it from being about this important rights-based moment into something that kind of supersedes the rights-based conversation. And what sits at the forefront is the representative aspects of Aboriginality. People know far more about the word and cultural aspects than they do about the actual rights that are, are intended to be signaled by the word's inclusion in the Constitution. And at the same time, I'm also looking at the way that Indigenous people have used or used the cultural capital of Aboriginality as a gateway to force very public conversations about the recognition and protection of Indigenous cultural ways environmental concerns, racism, and, and rights. So the inverse is how Indigenous people have actually kind of, I don't want to say capitalized, but drawn on the way that the word Aboriginal just became so big in public consciousness to, to advance conversations that might not have otherwise happened. And so this work on representation kind of continues through two co-edited books that I've just been in the latter stages of. One is also with UBC Press. It's going to be published in the spring, and it's with my colleagues from the University of Alberta, Dr. Chris Anderson and Dr. Adam Godry. And it's titled A People and a Nation, New Directions in Contemporary Métis Studies. And it brings together cutting-edge scholarship with respect to Métis people with a specific attention paid towards challenging race-based narratives of Métisness and advancing what we call Indigenous peoplehood-based approaches to Métis studies scholarship that understands Métis people from within Métis worldviews. And part of why I'm really excited about this collection is it's the first uh, anthology in Métis studies that is published entirely by Indigenous scholars. It has long been the practice that non-Indigenous people dominated the field of Métis studies, and, and all of the other anthologies to date include a, a combination of voices. So for us, this is a really exciting moment. The majority of the authors are Métis themselves. I think with one exception, we have one First Nations scholar, Dr. Rob Innes from the University of Saskatchewan. And so for us, this is a, a real opportunity to put forth a collection that thinks about what it is to be Métis and live in the world as Métis in the present moment from exclusively Métis perspective perspectives and grounded in research approaches that we feel are respectful of Métis families, communities, and, and societies and stories. I think in terms of research, there are different considerations when you are studying, say, an Indigenous or Aboriginal population, right? 
Yeah, very much. And I mean, for Métis people, like I said, the majority of the writing that has been undertaken and the research that's been published has been by non-Métis. And the tendency through that work has been to analyze Métis people and discuss Métis people as simply a, a byproduct of the intermarriage of two other populations, mm-hmm. broadly First Nations and Europeans. But that is not how we understand ourselves and our existence as a distinct Indigenous people. And so the chapters in the book are really trying to get people to understand that although that is perhaps the most popular way in which especially non-Indigenous people understand who Métis are, that that's not a a reflection of our reality. Like I said, for us, it's a very exciting work to kind of push the conversation even further and to just have for the first time that level of representation within Métis studies research, but also within Indigenous studies research. We have chapters that look at Métis literature. So Métis writing is a form of representation. We have chapter regarding religious uh, negotiations and participation as how like indigenous people are kind of represented within the field of religious studies, but also within practices of spirituality and religion. So in this volume, for me, it really is about the images and the systems of understanding that are produced around indigenous people, because quite often how indigenous people represent ourselves through art, through literature, through political engagement, is very different than how non-Indigenous people try to represent or have historically especially represented Indigenous people. And so the central tenet of the book is really to kind of push back against that very deeply entrenched narrative of Métis people that says Métis people are just are mixed race people and not really a distinct people unto ourselves. So it really is like all of the chapters are broadly concerned with different things. I, as a person that researches in the area of representation, see them as really intervening in that conversation. The second co-edited volume is for the University of Manitoba Press with Dr. Robert Alexander Innes from the University of Saskatchewan, and it's titled Indigenous Celebrity, Entanglements with Fame. And the book involves an interdisciplinary examination of the concept of celebrity and Indigenous people's relationship to it. It's the first anthology of its kind, and it will also be published in the spring of 2021. When I chatted with Maria Hupfield, who's also a faculty member at UTM in visual studies and English and drama, she was talking about just historically how, as exactly as you're saying, other people have told the stories of Indigenous people. So I just think that it's so important. If you're the person living that existence, I think you're the most informed to be able to tell the story in the right way. Yeah, exactly. And I appreciate you bringing her work and her being into it because the way that she says it is incredibly powerful and quite Mm -hmm. accurate. It really is about, in some ways, as an academic, kind of storying ourselves into the world of research. And part of this comes from the fact that For the most part, Métis people were not the objects or subjects of the study of fields like anthropology like other Indigenous people were, because we weren't seen as a pure people or a pure culture. And so what was overlooked by non-Indigenous researchers was the fact that there are actually distinctive elements of Métis existence. And so in teaching and talking about it, well, we often say to people, the Métis nation was a part of a large confederacy of Indigenous people on the prairies, the Nihalpak Confederacy. And so we lived in relation to other Indigenous nations who understood the Métis Nation as in relation. And this is a a history that few, I would say very few Canadians 
know much about. And again, that's largely due to the fact that the way that Métis people have been represented, especially since the Constitution, uh, because there was no clarification in the Constitution of what was meant by Métis, although the Métis people involved in the constitutional negotiation tried to entrench a clear definition of what was meant because it wasn't ratified. This has kind of allowed for the Canadian government and the general Canadian population to dwell in a, a very open interpretation of what Métis is and what it means. And one that is, like I said, just very much reliant on the discourse of race mixing, mixed racedness, rather than attending to like what we say in the book are the tenets of our peoplehood. What makes us a distinct people or as Nicole Saint-Ange has said, like a post-contact Indigenous people who express our political aspirations through the language of nationhood in a particular way. And I think that this totally ties in then to the next question I had was about your research covers themes related to representation and in particular how Métis women have organized and mobilized over the last 50 years. So I just wondered, I know you received a shirt grant last year to study this a bit more in depth, but if you could tell me a little bit more about this research project. It's something that's deeply close to my heart. And in the Métis Studies edited volume, I have a chapter derived from the work that I've already done in this area. But I became involved as a graduate student, so way back in 2006, with Métis Women's Political Organizations. And so I was a a regional representative for what was known as the Women's Secretariat of the Métis Nation of, of Ontario. And so my involvement with them was really about addressing, speaking to, advancing recognition of the distinctive positioning of Métis women living within Southern Ontario. My involvement in that capacity was fairly short-lived, but uh, in that time I served as an alternate to the board of the National Métis Women's Organization that today we know as Lefem Machif Odepemsawak, or LFMO. And through that relationship, I traveled to and participated in a number of what were known as the National Aboriginal Women's Summits, or NAWS, gatherings that moved from different provincial regions and brought together hundreds of Indigenous women from various representative organizations. And the objective of the NAWS gatherings were to address major issues of concern for Indigenous women in the presence of provincial premiers and representatives from various levels of government. For example, in 2012, I attended and witnessed Indigenous women collectively channel their voices to call on the provincial premiers in attendance to then use their power to push the federal government to commit to a national national inquiry on the high rates of Indigenous women who've gone missing and or been murdered. So the women collectively came together to say to the premiers, we need your support. We need you to push the federal government for an inquiry into this. These rates are exorbitant and none of this is normal. This all derives from a history of colonization and oppression that Canada refuses to reckon with. So, like I said, a lot of this has come from a personal engagement with and a witnessing of the work that Métis women have been doing in these spaces. And I've had the privilege to sit alongside women as they met with different members of government, other Indigenous organizations, and even with UN representatives when I was in Ottawa. And it gave me a pretty life-changing insight into the you know, what my academic speak would say, the complex public strategies of resilience practiced by Métis women. It's one thing to know a lived reality of a Métis woman who was raised primarily in southern Ontario and to travel out west to the prairies to develop an understanding of what that experience has been like for my family members that were raised out west. 
It's another thing to step out of that and then look at the women who are uh, drawing from their lived experiences as Métis to try to get the government to confront the impacts of colonization. And so I would say that this kind of trajectory of experiences kind of moved me in a renewed direction. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't call it new per se, because I've been doing little, little pieces here and there in relation to this, but has really renewed my commitment to doing work related to Métis women in the realm of politics. And so the work itself looks at the way that discourses of race and gender, along with other things like class, are mobilized as interlocking systems of oppression that impact Métis women in ways that are distinct, but also that converge with other Indigenous women. And for this, this Shirk project that you mentioned, so the Insight Development Grant is titled No One Else Can Speak For Us, Métis Women's Political Organizing from the 1970s to the Present. It will allow me through archival and interview-based research to try and document and analyze this remarkable legacy that I've been so privileged to witness. And the research really, my intent is to discuss how Métis women are using these organizations to confront racist and sexist oppression arising from the impact of colonization on their families and in their lives, but also the way that Métis women contest male-dominated Métis organizations and the at times ignorance of them to Métis women's specific experiences. But then it also examines Métis women's political efforts at different levels, local, provincial, national, and international levels. But I am really interested in this immediate encounter with the federal government and how Métis women have kind of worked in and through that. It is my intention when this project wraps up to apply for a SHRC partnership grant in partnership with the organization so that we can work more formally in greater collaboration. And we've kind of had preliminary discussions about the potential of holding community engagement and awareness sessions to generate knowledge, but also to disseminate research findings to communities, because there is a paucity of research related to Métis women. This is something that we've come up quite frequently against in relations and interactions with the federal government is that there is just an utter lack of research on Métis women's experiences. And I would say that this is consistent for all Indigenous people, but when it comes to Métis specific, it tends to either not be attuned to issues of sexism or it is male-dominated. But we do know from some of the available stats we have, for example, that conducted by the Métis Nation of Alberta, we see that Métis women commit suicide at higher rates than Métis men within the province. And so there are indications for us, along with the high rates of Métis women that we know have gone missing or been murdered, that there are systemic issues here that need to be really brought to the forefront. And I kind of see my role as a researcher as being an advocate for the work that the organization does. And that's a bit of a different turn than I think what non-Indigenous researchers do, because my role is not necessarily to come together to critically analyze and be critical of the work that they're doing, but to use the power and the privilege I have, yes, with a critical eye, but to work to amplify grassroots voices and community voices and ensure that the work that they undertake gets channeled into the teaching relationship so that future generations of researchers or policymakers or lawyers or teachers, doctors have a more fulsome understanding of the experiences of Métis women in this case. 
I can't help but think all of this work that you're doing is coming at this moment in time where there's so many discussions related to racism and discrimination and mistreatment of what's now being called BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Is there anything you would like to say? And I feel... A lot of people are in the same situation where we just feel helpless and overwhelmed. What can we do to keep this dialogue going and to bring about change? I mean, I think that taking cues from the public voices, in particular in this moment, the Black community that is calling for a particular kind of allyship, which means coming and being present, but also educating oneself about the legacies of anti-Black racism. And I think that, you know, in Canada, this is something that people, uh, the government itself has been afraid to address. And I think we can actually see this evinced by the very recent removal of Jagmeet Singh from the House of Commons yesterday for the remainder of the day because he used the word racist. Mm -hmm. People who are educated within the Canadian legal system have a very major gap in understanding about Canada's history of enslavement, Mm -hmm. of people of African descent, the presence of things like segregated schools for Black students in Ontario, the razzing of Black communities. People know a bit more about Africville, but that also Hogan's Alley in Vancouver was also decimated. I think that there's just a real lack of understanding. And what happens or I think what gets marked by what happened yesterday with Singh in the House of Commons is a moment to say to people, well, do you know that since 1986, the word racist has been on a list of unparliamentary language? According to the rules of the House of Commons, you can't actually utter the word racist. And and it sits on this list alongside words like jerk or scuzzball. You can't call someone a jerk or a scuzzball, but those are hardly words of scale. The latter two are really like none of the other words on the list of of unparliamentary language or anything other than insults. Mm. But racist is an important tool that people need to name systemic and individual racism within the House of Commons. So if you can't even really engage that conversation and say, well, actually, you are being racist in the House of Commons, then how can that happen? How can effective change from a deep systemic level happen? And I think, you know, for me, part of this is being aware, getting involved in the movements, educating ourselves, particularly for those of us who are not Black, but also recognizing that increasingly Indigenous people, Black communities, and those communities that kind of get lumped together as people of color are becoming aware of the deep way in which there are intertwined histories of relationship, but also oppression that have put people together in very powerful ways. And Although this is a podcast and you can't see my background from when I I was teaching, in the background of my screen here, you can see that Black Lives Matter protesters showed up at Queen's Park with signs calling on the province to reckon with the ongoing systemic oppression of the community of Attawapiskat. So there has been a history of Black Lives Matter being engaged and aware and advocating on behalf of Indigenous people. And I'm seeing right now on social media a growing awareness among Indigenous people as well about the need to be vocal advocates and allies to Black people because of how these histories and experiences of oppression are intertwined. And so I think that there is a lot going on right now. And for people who are not from these communities, there is a deep responsibility to become educated uh, and then to commit to doing something with that education. I know that uh, June 21st is National Indigenous Peoples Day, and I wonder if there's anything that you would suggest that uh, we could do or participate in to commemorate this day or Indigenous people in general? 
Uh, well, I tend to say, and this is not unrelated per se to what we were just talking about, but I think it's important to understand that some of the background to what we now know as Indigenous Peoples Day has also been kind of covered over by what I was even talking about earlier, kind of the multiculturalizing language that hides some of the relationships at work. When national, what was then National Aboriginal Day became a day for, as we know, First Nation, Métis, Inuit to share as the government says, various cultural expressions with the rest of Canada and to coincide with the summer solstice. During the course of the constitutional negotiations, what Indigenous people were actually looking for was National Aboriginal Solidarity Day. So what we commemorate now is missing a word. It's missing the word solidarity. And when it was proposed, there were debates about when it should be held. Some thought it should be held on the day that has now become a recognition for the legacies of residential schools, Orange Shirt Day. It's kind of moved and shifted around. But the purpose and intent of having the word solidarity in there was so that it might be a public recognition and commemoration of Aboriginal rights, and at the same time, a moment for accounting to address whether the government has been upholding its responsibilities under Section 35. So it was very much also a call for Canadians to commit to unlearning and learning about their responsibilities as settlers on Indigenous lands. And I think that we actually see a divide in how Indigenous people mark the day, or maybe not a divide, but a diversity in how Indigenous people mark the day, because some see it as a day for a positive expression of Indigenous love and pride for our cultures. But some see it also through the other lens as it was my research has kind of demonstrated or what I've uncovered in my research has been more about a desire for a, a politically oriented form of recognition with the day to remind Canadians that they have responsibilities to Indigenous people. That it doesn't mean just showing up for the fun stuff, for the food, the clothing, the artwork, performances, dance. It actually means showing solidarity for the things that matter. And like in this moment, the deep impact of racism within all systems within Canada, and there's growing conversation in this moment about the legacies and impacts of policing on Indigenous people here. And so for me, I would say, well, one thing that people might want to do is pick up James Doschuk's fantastic book called Clearing the Plains, disease, politics of starvation, and the loss of Aboriginal life. And he highlights the role of entities like the Northwest Mounted Police, which were really created to kind of police the prairies and in that Indigenous people that gives rise to the RCMP. But the role that the Northwest Mounted Police had in administering systems of oppression to Indigenous people, because there are deep roots to what we're seeing in the present moment namely concerns about excessive uses of force and violence against Indigenous people. So, you know, I'd say like picking up great books like that to unlearn, mm -hmm. learn a bit more. I think Chelsea Vowell's Indigenous Rights is an excellent primer for an array of different Indigenous-focused topics. Yeah. Again, Tanya Talaga's Seven Fallen Feathers for understanding some of the failures of the policing system and the judicial system. Mm -hmm. uh, John Burroughs' Recovering Canada, for people who are interested and really should get a better understanding of Canada's responsibilities to Indigenous people through its inheritance of responsibilities through the British. Jean Taillet's The Northwest is Our Mother, and Chris Anderson's Métis, Race Recognition and the Struggle for Indigenous Peoplehood, to understand what is an increasingly public conversation about Métis existence right now. Mm -hmm. I would say Mohawk Interruptus by Audra Simpson, Susan Hill's The Clay We Are Made Of, Haudenosaunee Land Tenure on the Grand River. I think all of these books really 
have the potential to change the way that people understand their relationship to Indigenous people. And so for me, that's what I would recommend that non-Indigenous people try to do is really become more educated because I think there is a tendency to quite often speak on issues related to Indigenous people and form opinions but on the foundation of very little education and awareness. And part of that is the failure of education systems to have incorporated uh, a more meaningful commitment to working through these legacies. But it is also then up to personal responsibility once you know to do more about it. And so that's where I would say that. Definitely partake in the beautiful performances that will be broadcast online for National Indigenous Peoples Day, but don't forget the solidarity aspect. And I think everyone needs to ask themselves, well, is the spirit and intent of Section 35 being honoured? Are we respecting Indigenous rights? And if not, then what can I do going forward to ensure that it is? Yeah, I love this list. I'm going to make sure that we have that as part of the resources on our SoundCloud page. Of all of these, I've only read The Seven Fallen Feathers, and I, I can't say enough about that book because I really found that it was eye-opening, and I learned a lot of things that I didn't know. But also, again, kind of depressingly and sadly, just how deep-rooted and systemic some of these issues are. You know, I know this time has been really challenging for a lot of people. We've all been sort of locked uh, away in our houses trying to carry on way we normally would. And I know you've had some extra challenges and you're teaching and everything, but I just wondered if you've been doing anything to maintain some balance or to keep you motivated that you'd like to share. You know, I think in a lot of ways, well, I think the balance of raising a young child while working from home without additional childcare support is a unique challenge. I tend to focus a lot on the privilege some of them unearned, but some of them acquired over time, the privilege that I have to be able to continue to work in a time when so many people have, including within my own family, have lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of do what I was raised to do, which is to practice gratitude every day and be thankful every day, but also try to continue to use the voice that I have through that privilege to impact change. And so I think rather than allowing it to be overwhelming. It's to continue to channel that commitment to other people and embracing and putting forth a determination that we must recognize the humanity of all people. And until systems of oppression are addressed, we can't rest. Uh, Channeling that into my teaching and my ongoing research and my social media interactions. I think that what has happened now is a moving of the education online for many people. And so there are more people online engaging in conversations than there were four months ago when a lot of people were out at work. This has come both a problem and a possibility for a lot of us. So I think for me, I actually, although overwhelmed at times by the challenges of continuing to work from home, I think reminding myself of those privileges and yeah, and and that responsibility to continue and carry forward. And I think I draw strength from that. And that makes it so much easier. For my partner, though, who in most times is bearing the brunt of the childcare responsibilities. So I've been also deeply thankful for them as well. Well, that seems like a very good, positive spot to end. I want to thank you so much for your time today, though. I really appreciate your taking the time. I know you're busy, but I think you've said so many great, important things. And it's just been nice having the opportunity to chat with you. Well, it's great to see you. I haven't had the, in all the email exchanges, haven't had the chance to see each other. I would like to thank everyone for lending me your ears as a captive audience for today's episode of View to the You. I would like to thank my guest, Professor Jennifer Adese from UTM's Department of Sociology for taking the time to chat with me and tell me about her Indigenous research 
and for providing insights for how we can better inform ourselves about Indigenous history in Canada. I would like to thank the Office of the Vice Principal of Research for their support, and a special shout out to my true blue compadre, Ryan Ceruto at UTM's Institute for Management and Innovation, for making it his mission to listen to all 38 tracks of View to the U, for always being a great supporter and sounding board, and for helping to promote the podcast throughout the years via his own social media channels. Your friendship and encouragement have been invaluable and very much a boost. Thanks, buddy. If anyone else out there is listening regularly, please take a moment to rate the podcast. It helps others find the podcast and learn more about UTM's research and its researchers. And also, we are now available on Spotify, so check us out on that platform. Lastly, and as always, thank you to Tim Terrific for his tracks and support. Thank you. Thank you.